to lean in when you have the capacity to lean in. And by that, I mean, when there are spaces in your life and seasons in your life, I could use that term, when you have the ability to put in more hours, put in more mental capacity, do it into your work, and then realize that there's other times in life when you won't have that because you'll have other things that you're putting your <laughs> mental <laughs> capacity into as well, like when you're first having a child and, and other seasons. And so I think it's important to recognize those times and give yourself grace both to lean in and not feel guilty about working so hard when you can, and then both to not feel guilty when you are a little bit more out of balance the other way. The oil and gas industry, the driving engine of the world economy, delivering prosperity, innovation and abundance across the globe. Here are the stories of its key players, directly from the leaders themselves. This is Oil and Gas Industry Leaders Podcast, where real experiences are passed on from the leaders of today to the leaders of tomorrow. Here is your host, Paige Wilson. Welcome back to another episode of Oil and Gas Industry Leaders Podcast. Before I introduce this week's guest, I wanted to ask everyone to support the show by taking a few moments and going into iTunes and leaving a review. It helps other people discover the show and it also gives me feedback on how I'm doing. So I super appreciate it. This week's review is a five-star review from NRW90 and it's about Amy Hopman. Great episode, easy listening, and Miss Amy is an absolute rock star. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Okay. Well, I'm sitting here this afternoon with Nikki Martin, president of Energeo Alliance. Hi, Nikki. How are you? Hi, I'm great. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Nikki, let's talk about how you got started in your career and on into the industry. Okay. Well, it's a long winding path as I'm sure it is for most. I'm an attorney by background. So originally from Alaska, a little town north of Anchorage in the Matanuska Valley. Oh, wow. Yeah. Growing up in Alaska, I always had a real appreciation for the resources and the environment around us. It's pretty unique to Alaskans, but also very common for an Alaskan to really appreciate wildlife and you know hiking and exploring the mountains that are right there at their doorstep. So always was very interested in pursuing a career path that focused on resources and resource development. And in Alaska, the number one resource that has the greatest impact on the economy and on the workforce is the oil and gas industry. So I always felt called to that specific industry and that I wanted to be in it, but I didn't really know how I would get there. My idea as a high schooler of how I would end up in the oil and gas industry look a lot different than how I actually got here. So <laughs> yeah, you know, I thought I was going to be an engineer like my older brother was, many of my parents, you know, many of my friends' parents were, and I was going to come back and I was going to work on the Alaska natural gas pipeline, <laughs> which as a side note, still does not exist. I know. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know. I guess that worked itself out, didn't yeah, it? <laughs> literally pipe dreams that I had <laughs> as a high schooler. So how I got here, I discovered in college that I was much better at political science than I was at engineering and statics and the courses that are required to get through engineering. And so I graduated with a poli-sci degree from the University of South Carolina 
and I was adamant. I was not pre-law, never wanted to be an attorney. I spent a couple years in Washington, D.C., working for the late, great Senator Ted Stevens, and then in Alaska, working for the Senate president, actually his son, Senator Ben Stevens, who was also the Senate president at the time. And they convinced me to go to law school. And so wound up in law school and really (laughs) focused on environmental law to understand the policies that undergird resource decisions and challenge resource decisions in court and to have a better understanding of what that looks like and how I could be involved and be effective in this industry. So that's a very long winding story of how I ended up in the oil and gas industry. Well, so let's talk about women in the industry. We're less than half of the industry, of course. The prevalence of women in the field has increased tremendously. I think it's almost 60% now. But can you share some experiences of how you face challenges as a woman in the industry? You know, I'll say that I have been very supported throughout my career, which I recognize is a little bit unique. I've had really strong mentors around me, men and women. I've never experienced a time where I felt disadvantaged because I was a woman. And I know that's tremendously unique for our industry. However, that doesn't mean I haven't faced some of the stereotypes or perceptions or even the self-imposed concerns about being a woman, being a mother, working mother in the industry, and had to work through those and ensure that it wasn't disadvantaging me or limiting me and how I could get my job done. One thing specifically I remember, so I'll jump forward to here I am now, president of the Energy Alliance. By the way, we were once called the IAGC, or the International Association of Geophysical Contractors, founded 51 years ago. And in our 51st year this year, we changed, rebranded to the Energy Alliance. And we can talk more about that later. But when I was first promoted to the role of president of this then IAGC in 2015, Our board was very enthusiastic and excited that at the time they had promoted the first female to an international energy association. I was the first female leader of an international energy association. They were really proud of that. They didn't really know how progressive they were being because I was also pregnant. (laughs) (laughs) So six (laughs) months later, I went on maternity leave, my first year's presidency. But I remember coming back back from that maternity leave and being at an event and a gentleman, a leader in the industry who'd been involved that I'd worked with, who really, I don't think there was any ill intent in it. I think he really had my best interest in mind. It was really a statement out of care, asked if I miss my children, if I miss my baby when I go to work every day. My immediate response, probably a little snarky, was, did you miss your children? Oh my gosh, who (laughs) asks that? Wow. Wow. I don't think there was any ill intent behind it. It was literally like, oh, I'm concerned that, you know, how are you doing? No, I just popped it out. Nah. (laughs) (laughs) And so I think, you know, sometimes there's still a perception that women think differently about their roles at work and their roles at home and have this difficulty balancing that more than their male counterparts do. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I think I would have been snarky too. (laughs) (laughs) I can almost guarantee I would have been just as snarky. 
Yes, but I think there's <laughs> so much room for improvement. And one thing I've noticed about our industry, because we're global, any part of the energy industry is global, right? And that's one of the things that makes it so dynamic and a great place to work. Right. Um, but because of that, and this makes sense too, companies want to give their employees and those they've identified as high performers and have on the leadership path exposure to different markets around the world. And that requires, can require, I think the history has, the practice has been to require those employees to move. That's a lot for a woman to take on who might be considering starting a family or has a young family and has a husband who's working or has a spouse that's working or there's two in the household and and doesn't have the flexibility of someone being able to take a larger role with the family. So I think there's change that needs to happen there in the way companies think about how they promote people through global exposure and moving them around if they're really serious about promoting women. Now, certainly I have a few mentors who've done that and have made it through and come out the other side, but I wouldn't say there's a lot that are still married. And so I, I think that <laughs> I think that means something, right? There's also yeah. not a lot of lawyers that marry each other and are still married. So <laughs> I mean, it's not unique to our industry, but I can imagine. I can only imagine. Yeah. So you left the associate attorney at Foley and Pearson, and then you became regulatory and legal affairs manager for Alaska Oil and Gas Association. Let's talk about that because that's kind of my niche. If anybody's listened to this show, knows I like regulatory compliance. Yes. Well, there's no end to the amount of work that you can have on that topic in the (laughs) energy industry. Yes. So that was my first real role outside of law school in the oil and gas industry. And I loved that job. Thank Kara Moriarty, the president, still president executive director at AOGA for bringing me on. So it was basically in-house counsel, regulatory affairs, compliance affairs for the industry in Alaska As I mentioned, it plays such an important role in the economy of Alaska, holds up over a third of the state's budget. Oh, wow. Yes. And so it's very important. And people in Alaska, the public are very aware of its impact on the economy and its impact on the people and communities. And so it's different. It's an exciting place to be involved, but there are a lot of challenges and a lot of them are federal challenges because such a significant part of Alaska is federally owned. And yes, I did notice that, especially with stuff coming out in the news about them canceling that other lease. Lease sale, yep, in the Cook Inlet, that's right. Mm-hmm. So it was an exciting time to be involved. That was you know, back when there was still exploration offshore in the Beaufort Chukchi Seas, so offshore off the North Slope, in addition to what's happening on the North Slope and in PRA, and then of course Cook Inlet as well. So it gave me some really early and good in-depth exposure to the issues and the statutes that could provide vulnerabilities and roadblocks to exploration that are applicable today and are applicable to my members in the Gulf of Mexico and are probably one of the primary challenges that we face right now. Yeah, yeah, I get it. So let's go ahead and talk about your current role and what all that entails. So where do you want to start? (laughs) (laughs) I guess let's go with Director of Environmental and Regulatory Legal Affairs and how you climbed your way up to president. Sure, sure. So my husband got recruited by Halliburton, also in the industry. Right. We were both lawyers (laughs) working in Alaska, and so they moved us down to Houston. I had to leave the job I loved at Ayoga, but through connections and 
that I had made within the industry wound up at then IAGC in a contracting role. And in the midst of interviews with some majors, decided I love trade associations. I love the effort and job of bringing competitors together on the same page to advance a common good, a common goal for the industry. And that's unique to trade associations. You won't get that in a company where sometimes it'd be nice to just have a bottom line to worry about and not, not be fundraising <laughs> for a nonprofit right. association. But it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun to collaborate and work towards consensus and balance competitors' positions and their own bottom line concerns with what's really good for the industry. So that's why I stayed at IEGC. I went into a regulatory legal affairs role similar to what I had at Ayoga in Alaska here. And then I guess it was a little less than two years later, the board made the decision, convinced me, twisted my arm to become the president and take over the lead of the organization. So what does the organization do? That's a great question. I'm so glad you asked. (laughs) That's what I'm here for. (laughs) So there's a lot of industry trade associations. I'm sure you're familiar with many of them. We're an industry trade association for the energy geoscience industry. And that's the industry that represents the intersection of where earth science and energy meet. So it's very expansive. That can include geophysicists, geophysical companies. It can include geologists. It can include geodata managers and providers and processors. And it certainly includes the companies, the integrated energy companies, the wind companies, the alternative companies, the operators who rely and depend on that data and analysis from the geoscience industry to meet their exploration, production, and sustainability goals. So that's the industry we represent. Now, what do we do? In very short terms, we are the industry's advocate. So our number one priority under our strategic plan is to ensure the industry's freedom to operate. And that's important because coming back to that, talking about how trade associations really serve as a means to get competitors together on the same page to advance a common agenda. We're not only bringing competitors together, we're bringing their clients together. That's pretty rare. They, they can. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's very rare. So we have through our industry partner membership category, we have 12 coming on. There will be a 13th member joining us this month, but we have 13 operators, includes all the IOCs, some majors, Gulf of Mexico independents, and other exploration companies. They have come on board with our organization to support the mission, the vision of our strategic plan, which primarily number one, that common denominator that unites us is ensuring the industry's freedom to operate. So because the energy geoscience industry is so integral to basically every source of energy, again, it sits at that cross section of where earth science and energy meet. They are the eyes and the ears to show you where the energy is to show you where you need to site your facility to harness the energy, to show you where the reservoir is to either harness energy or put carbon, if you're talking about CCUS, back into the ground and ensure it stays there and is contained. So they are literally the industry that starts energy, which is why our motto is energy starts here. Very good. Very good. So how do you feel about how the regulations are being implemented today? How frustrating is it? Because I'm frustrated. I mean, you said freedom to operate. Well, what about freedom to drill? What about freedom? Like, you know, I just, the climate 
and I don't want to necessarily bring politics in this, but I mean, it's kind of hard to avoid. But I feel like things are being taken away from us during a time where we really need to be producing our own energy. Yeah. So first of all, I'll just say, this is my disclaimer, we're a global industry association. So we don't advocate or represent the views of a particular national industry, which is great because it gives us the flexibility to talk from a platform that is more, I would say, compassionate, considerate to the needs and the energy demands of a developing world as well as a developed world. So what lifting the world out of energy poverty means to somebody in the US or Europe, you know, or Norway looks a lot different to somebody in South Africa or India or Mozambique. And it's really important to keep reminding your audience of that, to keep reminding, of course, our members know that, but keep reminding the, the policymakers that we're talking to about that, the public that we're talking to, other stakeholders who are influential in energy policy and regulations, that this is not specific to any one country. So that said, I do have opinions about that <laughs> here in the U.S. because it does matter. And there's this big conversation right now. Once again, we're talking about energy security. We hadn't talked about that a while, right? Yeah. Uh, energy security kind of lost its shine as a term or that even trades were using anymore. And suddenly it's back at the forefront and you have so many people around the world suddenly in the same public square talking about energy and why is it so expensive? Where is it coming from? What's happening to my utility bills and to the cost of transportation? So energy security is obviously at the top of the agenda for any country. So what's happening here in the U.S.? I mean, if you look at my LinkedIn, I haven't been shy about this recently. <laughs> I posted yesterday, Politico had a headline article that said something about you know the administration going to Venezuela and Canada to talk about how they can up the production. It's between the two of them as they continue to, quote, wring their hands in Washington over where they're going to find alternatives to Russian oil. And I thought, wring their hands? This is ridiculous. <laughs> it's right here. It's right offshore. It's onshore, but it's literally in the Gulf of Mexico. There's production waiting to be brought online now, but it requires the permitting of the geoscience industry. And so this is kind of one of those obscure provisions and regulation that you would get excited about <laughs> in, your, in your regulatory background. But there is a provision in the Marine Mammal Protection Act and the regulations that the agency, the Department of Commerce, Secretary of Commerce that's implemented under that are literally holding back the permitting of seismic activities and other geoscience activities on leases in the Gulf of Mexico right now. So Put the decisions about leasing aside, that there are no leases on the calendar. The ones that were there have been canceled, and there's a lease plan. The Secretary of Interior said this morning that they hope to have a draft uh, out by June 30th, but then it'll take you know at least another 150 days for a final. So there's no leases coming up in the near term. And what that lease plan even looks like, we don't know yet. But Develop the ones you have, right? Allow right. us to develop the ones we have. Allow us to explore the ones we have. Allow us to bring in, tie in the discoveries that we have to existing production. But that requires the eyes and ears of the geoscience industry, their activities, and they're not permitting them. So there are ways to accelerate production in the U.S. right now that are not being pursued. Oh, absolutely. And what really flusters me is the beginning of the Biden administration, they had actually, and I hope I say this right, 
no hate mail people, but I'm pretty sure he approved over 300 drilling permits in this first six months in office than Trump did, I think, his entire term. So canceling the Keystone, canceling the lease sales, I just, none of this makes sense to me. And I just, you know, I know the man doesn't know where he is half the time, but come on, cut us a break. Yeah, there's certainly tools that they have within their toolbox to turn up the dial on production here in the U.S. And I understand that they have a base that has certain ideals and they want to uphold their campaign promises of no new drilling, but <laughs> the situation has changed. The circumstances have changed. There's a lot of reasons why it's a good thing to continue to pursue exploration and production of all sources of energy right. in the U.S. And by the way, it's a good thing for the climate too. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what some people can't get through their dunce head. So, all right, let's get on to leadership. What is leadership to you, Nikki? That's a common question, right? For <laughs> these sorts of platforms and dialogues. But to me, we talk about somebody who commands the room. And there's a lot of leaders who command the room. We just got to talk about politics. There's a lot of politicians who command the room. That doesn't necessarily mean they're great leaders. Right. But taking that term forward, I think leadership means you can be someone who commands the vision. That means that you can bring your team into the vision that you have casted for them, that you are able to forge a path and are able to lead them in it and bring them into it, command of the vision that they are able to grasp it and run with the same energy and motivation that you have to pursue it. And sometimes that means forging a path, even in, when it requires, you know, deviation from the path, when there's roadblocks in the path, when there's stumbles that happen, it means that you're resilient through that. It, it doesn't cause you to pause or flinch, but you're able to continue to hold to that vision, provide insight, direction for your team, and, and continue to march forward and ensure that they're with you, ensuring that they're beside you, not just behind you, but they're beside you, that they share the vision and that they know what it takes to achieve the strategies and objectives that you have outlined together as a team. Perfect. What would you say is the hardest and the easiest part about being a leader? I'd say the hardest part can be that sometimes you're alone, right? <laughs> the leader's the one at the top. There are certain things that you're not able to share with your team. There are certain things that aren't wise for you for you to collaborate <laughs> with others that are looking to you for leadership on. So I would say that would be the hardest, but what was the easiest? I say yeah, that. the easiest. Easiest, the easiest thing about being a leader. It's great to be a leader of an excellent team, which I am. We have a, a team of eight that are headquartered here in Houston, Texas, but then, then we have assets that extend our reach throughout the world. But it is great to lead a team like them because they are high performing subject matter experts in their field. And it's fun to run together with a shared common vision to advance our industry. Are you missing the Alaska weather right now? No. <laughs> no? <laughs> Even in this humidity? I know it's really hot here, but I wouldn't take that any day. I'm just over here looking like a cocker spaniel is all. <laughs> well, that's true. Yeah, the humidity is not great for the hair. My, your skin and hair do look really good in Alaska. <laughs> you go, a little pale, a little pale. But. Well, I mean, I'm already living that life. Yeah. <laughs> I'm Scottish-Irish, mm -hmm. so, and I'm redheaded, so there's oh, no yeah. going. No, it's good. 
Sun's yeah. not good for you. <laughs> no. <laughs> Maybe I need to go to Alaska. There you go. <laughs> so if you had a piece of advice to give our audience, what, what would it be, Nikki? On the leadership front, I would say don't be afraid to challenge the status quo. I think a lot of times, regardless of the industry you're in, but a lot of times I find that a common theme within the oil and gas industry, we do things because it's the way we've always done them. And we think that there's value inherent in that. The justification for that is inherent because we've always done it. So I think it's good to stop. And if it doesn't make sense to you, challenge the status quo, because that's the kind of disruption and change in thinking I think is desperately needed to ensure this industry moves forward. Yeah. Some of our industry is very much behind, you know, still writing on paper and putting it into a computer using Excel for everything. <laughs> that's true. There's still not Excel. <laughs> well, that's how I used to do a lot of my reporting, my well activity reports. I'd have to pull, you know, this huge spreadsheet of each day for each week and then, you know, go through and make it look nice and get rid of all the extra crap and submit it. I don't know if it's changed. I haven't done it in a minute, but yeah, everybody's a little behind. Yeah. So I hope that's improved. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. And there's a lot of ways, you know, it's not only in the business practices, but in the how do we market the industry? How do we tell the story about the industry? How do we advocate for the industry? Well, podcasts have been a great change for that. Yes, that's true. They're so, a great way to get information out. So absolutely. Absolutely. So what book influenced you the most? You know, that's a big question. When I think about leaderships, some books that kind of are always at my desk to reference anything by Lencioni, of course, for leadership. There's a great book, Radical Candor by Kim Scott, that really talks about ensuring that you're able to bring the best out of your team, which I think is a very important part. One of the things I like most about being a leader is convincing them, proving to them that they are able to be and do even more than they think possible. Show them that they can be, you know, rise to higher levels than they thought thought they could. But you know, this is going to sound a little weird. <laughs> I'm ready. I heard you know, weird. I want to give a book that you've never heard before. And oh. of course, you know, life book, the Bible. I am a believer, so I do depend a lot on that book as well. But and there's a lot of great leadership principles in there. But this right. is, this is one that's. <laughs> So as I became president in, in 2015 and then had my first child in 2016, a book that really did impact me positively because I was traveling a lot. I traveled a lot that first year I had a baby. Work, pump, repeat. <laughs> That's the name of Work, it. pump, repeat? Work, pump, repeat. Right on. And it normalized, you know, can I say that on here? Pumping. Yeah. And I nor- it normalized. The process and the you know the duty, the burden of having to do that and being able to balance that along with a you know vibrant career in right in unusual places. So yeah, and a lot of people don't (laughs) understand what women go through during that period, and that it's so hard and it hurts. And yes, there's so much to it, and there's not always an office that you have a place to go. Pump, you know. That's right. And I think industry, you know, that's a large, is improving on that too. But the time piece and just, it's another one of those things that you just, I don't think women in general have talked a lot about. So men don't know. 
I actually, one of my colleagues in another podcast on our network, Women Offshore, the host of that, Ali Cedeno, is actually pregnant now. And she's been working offshore. So I'm gonna have to send that her way. Yes, you should. I loved it. You know, maybe I'll go back now and read and be like, oh, well, <laughs> but at the time it gave me, I guess it made me feel not so alone. It made me feel seen. <laughs> I yeah. can say that. Yeah, absolutely. For sure. So what's your most used business tool? Most used business tool. What do you mean by that? What do you mean by tool? A tool can be anything. It could be an application you can use. It could be the way of doing something. It could be yours. I've heard someone say, I'm the tool, (laughs) you know? And I was like, well, how do you mean that? But (laughs) 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 Or somebody has said, you know, my leadership is a tool. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I would say communication. You can't communicate enough over communication. As my VP of communications, external affairs always says, tell them what you're going to tell them, tell them what you told them and tell them again. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> I think communication is absolutely key. To oh, especially it. if it's effective communication, because I think you and I have something in common that we've had to speak various different languages, especially, you know, throughout, you know, working for an operator or, you know, because the geos speak differently than the reservoir engineers and that engineer speaks different than the petroleum engineers and everybody speaks a different language and you're here in the middle and you have to take that all in and then communicate effectively back. Yeah. And that's a really good point. And that is something that's absolutely central to our core value proposition at Energio is that we base all of our advocacy, everything we do around providing credible science and fact-based information. So we don't ever want to stray from what you know the technology is telling us, what the operations are telling us, what the facts are saying in the field. And we don't ever want to stray from the science. So we want to be sure that we're always communicating from that. We're not an association to go into rhetoric or in politics, but we're certainly an association that will correct politicians and policymakers and challenge them and challenge organizations and movements, environmental movements that are set against our industry at the science. If we're challenging them based on science, it's in our favor. And oh, absolutely. Very effective. Facts are facts, even though a lot of people want to fight that, but I'm not even going to touch that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So I don't know if this is necessarily applicable, but who's your most respected competitor? Yeah. So that's not really applicable. I wouldn't say we have competitors within trade associations. So it's very segmented. <laughs> There's a trade association for everything. The supply chain in the energy is vibrant. And then you can find probably multiple trade associations for each section of it. But for our industry, specifically the geoscience industry and the geophysical industry before that, we're the only trade association for the global industry. We have a smaller peer in Canada that's just focused basically on onshore geophysical contractors. But no one in our space, and I would say to that broader constituency that we represent, both energy and geoscience, where our focus is really providing access both to data acquisition, both to ensure that you have the data analysis from the geoscience industry, and also to acreage, because you can't do anything without one, you know, with one, but without the other. So it's really important that we are ensuring access for acreage and data. And so 
there's really no other industry association that fits specifically in that exploration space globally. But we have a lot of peers that we work with and cooperate with and leverage each other's resources and expertise to the common goal of promoting our industry together because we're all in for the same objective, right? What API is doing, who we work really well with, Noya, APIA in Australia, there's all kinds, OEUK, <laughs> right? So there's, you know, all over the world that we're working with and we have very strong cooperative relationships with, and that's all to promote at the end, you know, the end objective is our end user, our industry, our energy industry. Yeah. Yeah. So what's your most important lesson learned? Most important lesson learned to lean in when you have the capacity to lean in. And by that, I mean, when there are spaces in your life and seasons in your life, I did use that term, when you have the ability to put in more hours, put in more mental capacity, do it into your work and then realize that there's other times in life when you won't have that because you'll have other things that you're putting your <laughs> mental <laughs> capacity into as well, like when you're first having a child and, and other seasons. And so I think it's important to recognize those times and give yourself grace both to lean in and not feel guilty about working so hard when you can, and then both to not feel guilty when you are a little bit more out of balance the other way. Yeah, makes sense to me. Why is your role now important to the future of the industry? So I keep saying this over again. We sit at the intersection of where earth science and energy meet. There's literally almost no source of energy that can happen, that can be successful without the geoscience industry. Energy truly starts here, whether it's wind or low carbon solutions like CCUS or geothermal, even nuclear, critical minerals required for a lot of alternative energy sources and EVs the geoscience industry is required. And so our role is going to grow with increasing importance, not to mention the critical role that it has played in transforming the oil and gas industry over the last 60 years. There's this graph that I have that I love to show. And if you know we were in a video podcast, I'd show it up on the screen, but it shows the transformation in the U.S. Gulf of Mexico with each leap in each step change in geoscience technology, how many more discoveries were found, how the cumulative discovered assets increased. And every time there was a change, oop, it went up again, bump, bump, bump. And it's just incredible. It's an incredible story, incredible testament to the innovation, the technology of this industry. And it will continue to play a very critical role for virtually any energy source. Do you have a link to that? I do. Yeah, I'll send it to you. Yeah, yeah. Send it to me. I'll put it in the show notes. So if anybody's interested in looking at that, they can. Because I definitely want to see it. You know, I'm going to geek out. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so do you have a favorite podcast? You know, I don't listen to podcasts that much. Sorry, I apologize in advance. Oh, it's okay. I don't listen to podcasts either, and I have two. <laughs> I moved closer to my job, and so the great thing about that is that my commute's five minutes. But oh, the that's awesome. part about that is I don't have to, I don't listen to anything anymore <laughs> besides my children talking to me when I'm not at work. And so, but I have listened to Flipping the Barrel. I like that podcast. It's doing a lot to promote and support women in the energy. Macy industry. and Jamie. Yeah, yeah. I know those ladies. Oh, good. Yeah. So shout out there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. I think that's it. If people want to reach out and get to know more about you 
or your company, how might they go about doing so? Yep. So energioalliance.org is our website. You feel free to look us up there and find more information out about this there. You can look me up on LinkedIn. Happy to connect. Yeah, I just started following you yesterday. So. Oh, good. All right. (laughs) Perfect. Great. And I'll put links in the show notes for everybody. Thank you so much again, Nikki. Since you're in Houston, you should join us for our industry mixer. We have one at the Canon at I-10 and Beltway 8 the last Thursday of every month. So yeah, let me know ahead of time. I'll let you in. Okay. Sounds good. And everybody else that wants to participate, it's $20 a person, unless you're a veteran or a student, and all the proceeds go to Red M to help them save people from sex trafficking. So, all right. Well, that concludes this episode. So just remember, it's up to you to open the next door. Tune in next week for another intriguing episode of Oil & Gas Industry Leaders Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at oilandgasindustryleaders.com. 